You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When King Karam of Zazu, a Hausa city-state in what would become Nigeria, died in 1576, his successor had already been waiting to take the throne for 28 years. After being schooled in political and military matters and proving themselves a skillful warrior, they were named the Magayiga, or the heir apparent, at age 16. King Karam's favorite grandchild would eventually become Queen Amanadu. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. History and folklore tend to intertwine. This can happen especially when that history has been systematically eradicated. You'll hear me mention or notice on your own a lot of gaps and uncertainty in some of today's histories. The history of Africa is the least well-known or widespread of any of the continents. The fact that we even refer to Africa as if it were one cohesive group and not an equally large and varied group of people as you see in Europe or Asia tells you something right there. The cause of this is as sad as it is obvious. Europeans arriving in Africa saw no great libraries or troves of history books, so they assumed the people of Africa had kept no history, or they had no history worth keeping. In fact, their histories were kept in the oral tradition, a system that worked out just fine until some whitey, blue-eyed devil, patio, fey, gray, honky-melon farmer showed up and started kidnapping and killing people. Victims of the Atlantic slave trade would be intentionally removed from their family and neighbors and mixed together with people from other communities. This meant a lack of common language with the intent to stymie unrest and uprisings on New World plantations. It also meant that those who knew their history had no one else from their nation to pass it on to, as well as all the gaps created in the collective knowledge back home. But let's start well before Columbus discovered an island that had millions of people living on it. In the 12th century, life was nice for the Yoruba people in what is modern-day Nigeria, ruled by the beautiful and benevolent Queen Muremi Ajaraso, wife of the king of Ife Ife and mother of Ella Olurogbo. But there was one small problem, and it was a big one. Their neighbors, the Igbo, literally forest people, had a persistent habit of raiding their villages to loot, pillage, and kidnap people into slavery, either for their own use or to sell. This is not the same as the Igbo ethnic group, and if my friend Phoenix is listening, did I say it right this time? The raiders were not only terrifying for their violence, but also their strange, alien-like appearance. They didn't look human at all. So otherworldly were the Igbo that the Ife people thought they'd been sent by the gods as a punishment. The Ife offered sacrifices to the gods, but all for naught. 
The raids continued, and the land was thrown into a state of panic. Not one to sit idly by while her people were suffering, Moremi hatched a plan, but she was going to need help, and a lot of it. She would allow herself to be taken prisoner by the Igbo so that she could learn about them. But before she would put herself in such a precarious position, Moremi went to the river Esamirin and begged the goddess who lived there to help her save her people. As the story goes, the river goddess said that she would help, but only if Moremi would sacrifice that which was most precious and valuable to her. Moremi was a queen, to wit, rolling in the dough, so she didn't hesitate to agree. Whatever the river goddess wanted, surely she could spare it, and her people needed saving. During the next Ebo raid, Moremi allowed herself to be captured. On account of her beauty, she was given to the king as a slave, but it was her keen intellect that allowed her to move up the ranks until she was made the anointed queen. No idea how long that took or how many more raids happened in the meantime. If you want to learn about a group of people, you need to infiltrate them and gain access to what they know. Moremi was not only among the Ebo, she was now their queen. As spycraft goes, that's S-tier work. This was how she learned that the terrifying, monstrous appearance of the raiders that had tormented her people was battle dress made from raffia palm and grass. It made them look inhuman and demoralize their victims with pants-wetting terror. But if you know anything about dry grass and vegetation, you know that those costumes were extremely flammable. The Ife wouldn't need spears and weapons to protect themselves. All they need was, how about a little fire scarecrow? She probably picked up tactics and such like as well, but no one who's written about Moremi, at least in what I read, bothered to write any of that down. Same with her escape from the Ebo and return to Ife Ife, which I'm sure was harrowing and adventuresome. Either way, she returned to her people and said, you know those supernatural beings who've been pillaging and kidnapping us? Yeah, they're just dudes, and it turns out they're also covered in kindling. The next time the Ebo showed up, the Ife armed themselves with torches rather than weapons, and were finally able to repel the invaders. One assumes the Ebo backed off them pretty much after that. Now that Queen Moremi's people were safe, it was time to repay the river goddess for her help, so Moremi assembled a flock of cattle and other livestock, as well as a mass of valuable cowrie shells, a veritable lifetime's fortune, which she was glad to give up. But that wasn't what the goddess wanted, not even close. As anyone who's ever heard a fairy tale can probably guess, the goddess wanted something much more valuable, more precious than all the commodities even a queen had to offer. The river goddess demanded the life of Moremi's only son, Ella Olorogbo. To go back on her word would be to tempt an even worse fate for the Ife, so Moremi had no choice but to sacrifice her only son to the river. The Ife people wept to see this and vowed to their queen that they would all be her sons and daughters forever to repay and console her. To this day, the Yoruba people honor her and mourn with her, holding her in the highest esteem of any woman in the kingdom. According to sources, anyway. If, like my friend Phoenix, you have family from that region and know better, 
Not only do I not mind being corrected, I appreciate and even enjoy it, because it means I learned something. And you can always slide into my DMs. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie Labouche. If, God forbid, for some reason you're curious what I look like. Queen Maremi is recognized by the Yoruba people because of this bravery and celebrated with the Eddy Festival, as well as with a 42-foot or 13-meter-tall statue, popularly known as the Queen Maremi Statue of Liberty, which is the tallest statue in Nigeria and the fourth tallest in Africa. It hardly needs to be said that there are many more amazing queens in the histories of the peoples of Africa than I'm possibly going to get to on a half-hour podcast. But some more of them will be over on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts in the first of this month's two bonus mini-episodes, which patrons of all levels receive. Speaking of getting good stuff... I want to give a big shout-out to Eric Rodriguez, who won week one of Hashtag Moxie Million. Uh, he's in a different continent than I am, so it's going to take me a bit to figure out what his prize is going to be. But don't forget, there's cool stuff like custom 3D prints, a signed copy of the book, and whatever else that crosses my crazy brain. And there's a new winner each week, whether we make it to a million or not. But I always feel like a million bucks when I get a new review on the podcast or the book. This one comes to us via Apple Podcasts from SuperSithy739, who said, Can't get enough Wyboff. I started listening about one month ago after hearing Moxie on Fantastic History of Food, which everybody should definitely listen to, and I can't stop listening. I especially like the episode about banned books. Anyone in my family will tell you about my love of facts, and this podcast nurtures my appreciation of history and facts. Moxie's voice is extremely relaxing and never ceases to make me feel better after a long or stressful day. Whenever I see a new episode, I drop everything to put on my headphones and listen. Thank you so much for this wonderful podcast, Moxie. And thank you so much, my super city friend. While reviews don't create the algorithmic magic we once thought they did, boy, it sure keeps a tired old podcaster going just one more week. And I've only got two more reviews to read out. So if you want to hear your opinion on the air, as it were, drop a review on your podcast listening app of choice or at podchaser.com. While the word Nubian is used broadly by many and incorrectly by most of those to refer to all things African or African-American, it refers to a specific region and its people. In what is today Sudan, south of Egypt along the Nile, was the Kingdom of Kush. I will wait while the stoners giggle. By the way, if you work in the legal cannabis or CBD industry, I'd love to talk to you about doing voiceovers for your business. Anyway, the Kushites' northern neighbors, the Egyptians, referred to Nubia as Taseti, which means the land of bows, in honor of the Nubian hunters' and warriors' prowess as archers. Archery was not limited to men to a number of female Nubian warriors and queens, the most famous of whom was Queen Amanarinus of Nubia, conqueror of the Romans. Prior to achieving autonomy, the peoples of the region had been living under foreign occupation since around 1550 BCE, when they were absorbed by the Egyptian New Kingdom. It was during that period that they adopted many aspects of Egyptian culture, 
it was only during the catastrophic Bronze Age collapse that the Kushites were able to reassert their independence. By 754 BCE, the Kushites actually managed to conquer their former overlords in the campaigns of King Pai, who ruled them as pharaoh of the 25th dynasty. They were eventually pushed out of Egypt by the Assyrians in 674 BCE, but still maintained independent rule over the region of Nubia. For many centuries, this small autonomous kingdom had successfully coexisted alongside neighboring foreign dynasties that had been occupying the provincial territories of Egypt, such as the Archimedean Persians and the Greeks of the Ptolemaic dynasty. It was at the end of the Ptolemaic dynasty, after the death of Cleopatra VII, the one we just call Cleopatra, that things started to get a little sticky. When the Roman Empire rose in prominence and annexed the territories of the House of Ptolemy, the prefect or appointed provincial governor for Egypt, Cornelius Gallus, attempted to make further incursions into the territories south of Egypt and impose taxation on the Kushites. The Kushites said collectively and officially, yeah, no. They launched counterattack raids against Roman settlements in southern Egypt in 27 BCE. The armies were led by the ruling Kushite monarchs at the time, Teratekas the king and Amonarinus the queen or Kandake, meaning great woman. Shortly after the war began, King Teratekas was killed in battle and was succeeded by his son, Prince Akinadad, but Amonarinus was really in charge as queen regent. In 24 BCE, the Kushites launched another round of invasions into Roman Egypt after the new prefect, Aelius Gallus, was ordered by Roman Emperor Augustus to launch an expedition into the province of Arabia Felix, now part of modern-day Yemen, against the Arabic kingdom of Saba. According to geographer and historian Strabo, the Kushites sacked Aswan with an army of 30,000 men and destroyed imperial statues at the city of Philae. He referred to Amonarinus as the fierce one-eyed Queen Kadake. Oh yeah, did I forget to mention that? The one-eyed thing? Yeah, sorry, buried the lead there. Amonarinus didn't lead her soldiers from the throne room, war room, or even a tent camp well behind the lines. She was in the vanguard, properly leading as leaders these days can't be asked to. Maybe if we required all kings, presidents, prime ministers, dictators, and their generals to fight on the front line with their sole heir right beside them, things would be a little bit more chill up in this bish. Amonarinus lost her eye to a nameless Roman soldier, and I'm ready and willing to assume that she immediately slew him with a single epic slow-motion swing of her short sword. The Kushites also met and engaged a Roman detachment outside the city of Syene. The battle was another astounding victory for the Kushites, but success can be short-lived. That same year, in a battle at Dhaka, Prince Akinadad fell, just as his father had, and the Kushites fell back, but took with them all the riches and slaves they had acquired. The expedition of Elius Gallus proved disastrous, as the movement of the army depended on a guide who deliberately misdirected them, costing them months of marching. When they finally reached the capital city, 
Gallus's siege lasted only a week before he was forced to withdraw due to a combination of disease, the harsh desert climate, and the overextension of their supply lines. That's basically the trifecta of reasons behind a larger army's retreat. The Roman navy did somewhat better, occupying and then destroying the port of Eduman, thus securing the naval merchant trade route to India through the Red Sea, which was no small yams. Having failed so spectacularly at bringing the Kushites to heel, Gallus lost his prefect job to Publius Petronius, who then took his legions and marched directly into Kushite territory, looting and pillaging villages and towns in 23 BCE. The Kushites attempted to get their own back with a siege of Primus, but Petronius broke through. It was at this point that the Kushites sued for peace. You might be thinking that Rome had Kush on the back foot and this was a desperate surrender to save their skins. Well, put that thought out of your mind right now. The Kushites did send negotiators to Augustus in 21 BCE, and a peace treaty was negotiated, but it was remarkably favorable for the Kushites. Rome would pull its soldiers from the southern region called the 30-mile strip, including the city of Primus, and the Kushites would be exempt from paying any tribute. More importantly, they had managed to secure their autonomy and remain free from Roman occupation. When have you ever heard of Rome or any conquering army giving terms like that? That led historians and armchair historians alike, myself included, to conclude that Rome was shaking in their sandals at the prospect of having to continue to fight a monarina and her warriors on their home turf. It was worth the cost of giving up whole cities and foregoing tribute to stop being beaten by them. Although the Kushites had managed to retain their independence, Rome's monopoly on Mediterranean trade, plus their newly established trade route to India, greatly diminished Kush's economic influence during the 1st and 2nd century CE. The rising kingdom of Aksum in Ethiopia managed to push the Kushites out of the Red Sea trade, which led to an even further decline that resulted in the Aksumites invading the kingdom and sacking the capital in 350 CE. And that was pretty much it for the kingdom of Kush. But I've saved my favorite part of Amanarina's story for last, the souvenir. When Kush troops moved through an area that had already been occupied by Rome, the warriors would destroy anything Roman that they found, chiefly buildings and statues. With Augustus being emperor, there were a lot of statues of him about, and the Kushites said, get wrecked, son, to every last one of them. The head of one bronze statue was taken back to the capital, where it was discovered during an archaeological dig in 1912, positioned directly below the feet of a Kushite monarch on a wall mural. Apart from that sick burn, the head was also significant for being the only, at least partial, statue of Augustus ever found to still have the bright white inlays for the eyes. So when you look at it, and there's a link in the show notes, Augustus looks like he's permanently, perpetually surprised to have been beaten by a widowed queen with one eye. Psst. Hey, yeah, you. You want to do something really cool? You want to win prizes? You want to help an independent podcaster get to 1 million downloads? Well, it's a good thing I'm here to tell you about Hashtag Moxie Million. 
Your Brain on Facts turns four years old on February 27th, and the show is currently just north of 950,000 total downloads. Share the show or a cool fact that you learned on social media with the hashtag MoxieMillion. I'll be keeping an eye on that and giving away prizes every week. Regular swag, exclusive swag, signed copies of the Your Brain on Facts book, you name it. Help Your Brain on Facts get to a million downloads before its birthday. Hashtag MoxieMillion. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. While I'd happily humor debate, especially over a pint and a basket of fries, I'll stake my position that Queen Ranavalona I of Madagascar is the bloodiest queen in world history. People should think of her, not Lady Macbeth or Elizabeth Bathory, when they need an icon for woman with blood on her hands. From the start of her reign, she tortured and killed her rivals and presided over untold suffering of her own people. In those 33 years, while also successfully repelling European attempts to take over her country, her orders reduced the population of Madagascar by half or more. Born a commoner with the name Rabato Andriana Poina Marina, that's one word, in 1778, Princess Ranavalona found upward mobility very quickly when her father helped to foil an assassination plot being assembled by the king's uncle. As a reward, the king betrothed Ranavalona to his son and heir, Prince Radama. Talk about a glow-up! Ranavalona wasn't Radama's only wife, nor was she even his favorite, though at least she was the first. Though it probably didn't help their relationship when Radama became king and immediately executed all of his potential rivals, as was the custom. But that did include some of Ranavalona's relatives. When Radama died in 1828, possibly of syphilis, possibly of poison, Having not managed to get even one child on his dozen wives, the rightful heir became Rakatobi, the eldest son of Radama's oldest sister. 
Rakatobi was considered to be an intelligent young man, as he was one of the first people to have studied at the school established by the London Mission, which also made him sympathetic to the ambitions and efforts of the European missionaries and businessmen who sought to establish themselves on the island. Ranavalona was still a threat, though, as any child she bore would be considered the legitimate heir before Rakatobi, so she had to go. Luckily, the military supported Ranavalona and helped her to secure her place on the throne. Rakatobi, his immediate family and supporters, were put to death. The men with spears and the women starved in prison. Ranavalona then ceremonially bathed in the blood of a bull. For anyone who wants a sense of how the rest of the story is going to go, that sets the tone pretty accurately. At her coronation, she gave a warning to those who would seek to undermine her. Never say, she is only a feeble and ignorant woman. How can she rule such a vast empire? I will rule here to the good fortune of my people and the glory of my name. I will worship no gods but those of my ancestors. The ocean shall be the boundary of my realm, and I will not cede the thickness of one hair of my realm. So, Rana woke up this morning and chose violence, huh? Her late father-in-law had attempted to modernize the military by building modern forts and cribbing Napoleonic tactics. To achieve this, he'd signed treaties with the British and French for supplies and armaments, as well as allowing Christian missions to be built. In turn, the European powers sought to establish dominance over the nation, which is information I will file under W for who could ever have foreseen that, comma, sarcastic. From the very outset of her reign, Ranavalona walked all that back, ending treaties with the British and restricting the activities of the missionaries. Just little stuff like banning the teaching of Christianity in the mission school. Three years into her reign, King Charles X of France ordered the invasion of Madagascar, but the malaria and political strife back home forced them to pack it in. A big green checkmark in Ranavalona's win column. But just for good measure, she ordered the heads of the dead French soldiers to be placed on spikes along the beaches. The Queen soon turned her attention to her Christian subjects and a few European missionaries and traders who remained. If you were caught practicing Christianity, you could expect to be beaten and hundreds were arrested. Once imprisoned, they faced torture and starvation, which beats the alternative of being hung from a cliff and left to die of exposure. Whatever horrific fate they chose for you, your family had to watch. Ranavalona was not a nice lady. I really cannot stress this enough. If you were up on charges of treason, you'd face an ordeal by food. You'd be forced to eat three servings of chicken skin and poison made from the Tagena tree. If you threw up all the chicken and just the chicken, you were free to go. But if you didn't vomit up all three pieces, you'd be executed or possibly killed by the poison, six of one. For every other crime, you'd be treated to a nice boiling, either in water or oil, depending on the day, or, and here's a phrase, incremental dismemberment. Queen Ronavalona, I should mention, 
also did away with trial by jury because that was a European thing. Whilst the Queen was fiercely anti-European, she was very much aware of their need to modernize. Madagascar needed industry of its own, rather than importing from other places. In 1831, a French industrialist named Jean Laborde presented himself to the Queen after he found himself shipwrecked on Madagascar. Laborde was soon made the chief engineer to the court, and possibly father of Ronavalona's son, Rokoto. Charged with building a giant factory to turn out soap, ceramics, cannons, and other weapons, with the help of 20,000 enslaved laborers. Her military was paid by the kingdom, but not well. They did have a benefit to offset that, official permission to pillage, loot, and extract any value they could find from her subjects. In 1845, new laws meant that all foreigners on the island would be forced to take part in the building of public works. Many were able to leave Madagascar to avoid such servitude, but the people who usually live there weren't so lucky. These works projects were usually performed by slaves or those who hadn't paid their taxes, and would find themselves in bondage for the remainder of their lives. That may not be too long, though, when you consider how many people were literally worked to death. Tens of thousands per year. To make sure there would always be enough expendable labor in Madagascar, Queen Rana abolished the export of enslaved people. Importing them? Still a-okay. The public works were bad enough, but the enslaved could never have imagined the horror that would come with the 1845 buffalo hunt. Have you ever read about the extravagant boar or deer hunting expeditions that ye olde kings would go on, where they'd have dozens or hundreds of people, a whole retinue, out chasing these animals? And you thought that that sounded completely extra and nuts? Well, those look like a carpool to the grocery store in comparison to this. The Queen ordered the royal court to embark on a buffalo hunt through the malaria-infested swamps and jungles. In order for the royal party to travel more comfortably, some 20,000 forced laborers were sent into those malaria-infested swamps and jungles to build a road. Not a road to one place or a road between two places, a road that existed solely for this trip. An estimated 10,000 enslaved men, women, and children died from disease and the harsh conditions. Mosquitoes and bacteria have no care for rank, and many of the 50,000-strong hunting party would die in the jungles. I mean, it was mainly, though, servants and slaves dying. And how many innocent buffalo were wiped out in this boondockle debacle? Uh, in round figures, zero. En français, zéro. In German, null. In Swahili, zufuri. In Thai, son. And in Yiddish, bupkis. Thousands of people died on a buffalo hunt that killed no buffalo. All because the queen wanted to go. It's not surprising that many within the Queen's own court were eager to depose her, but the closest anyone ever got 
was when her adult son Rakoto gave French businessman Joseph-Francois Lambert exclusive rights to the minerals, lumber, and unused land of the fourth largest island in the world. All Lambert had to do for his end was get rid of the queen and make room for Prince Rakoto to become King Radama II. Lambert attempted to obtain support from the French and British governments, but to no avail. In 1855, the prince wrote in secret to Napoleon III of France, but Boney III left him on red. It was not until 1857 that the coup was actually attempted, and you might surmise by my use of the word attempted that it did not work. Queen Rana Valona responded by expelling all Europeans from Madagascar and seizing all of their assets. With their foreign oppressors gone, the enslaved workers of the factories burned those mothers down. The prince faced no consequences, and his actions were downplayed, as though he had been led astray by smooth-talking Europeans eager to exploit their country. Speaking of no consequences, Queen Rana Valona I died peacefully in her sleep at the still-impressive-today age of 83. While she was one of the few African rulers to keep Europe at bay, more than half a million suffered and died during her 33-year rule. Per her orders, the country entered into an official mourning period. The bloodiest queen in history was dead, but she wasn't off-brand. 12,000 zebu cattle were slaughtered, though the meat was distributed to the people. And during the burial, a stray spark ignited a barrel of gunpowder destined for use in the ceremony, which caused an explosion and fire that destroyed many of the surrounding buildings and killed many of the surrounding people. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The House of Queen Amina reigned spectacularly for 34 years, winning wars, enlarging her territory, introducing cola nut cultivation and metal armor, and making sure their traders had safe passage through the Sahara. Today, she's remembered not only for her bravery, but also for building fortifications called Ganuwar Amina around her city. Remember, you can always find the links to the source material as well as the full script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.